What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Get ready for all the craziness of small business. It's exactly that craziness that makes it exciting and totally unbelievable. Small Business Radio is now on the air with your host, Barry Moltz. Well, thanks for joining this week's radio show. Remember, this is the final word in small business. Today, as I've been doing since the beginning of the pandemic, I'm recording this from my home to your small business. For those keeping track, this is now show number 636. This episode is sponsored by AT&T Business. Join me and AT&T at the next Small Business Expo on June 17th for more resources to boost your small business. Register for free at www.smallbusinessexpo.com. Well, how do you grow a million dollar business your mom started and take it to 350 million after you got involved? My next guest did just that. Chris Ciccinelli is the CEO of Pure Romance and he has a new best-selling book called The Secret of You. Hard work and strategic risk taking have been at the core of his success stories across two decades with Pure Romance. Chris is overseeing the expansive growth, taking the company, as I said, from a million dollars to 350 million annual sales. Chris, welcome back to the show. Well, I am so glad to be here. Thanks again for having me. I gotta believe that during the pandemic, your business did okay. Well, yeah, I, I would say during the pandemic, it was good. You know, I was a little worried when everything shut down in, in March and April. You know, we are a complete in-home party plan business, right? And so the best thing that ever happened was the ability for all of these amazing entrepreneurs that I work with every day to be able to pivot and go completely uh, to a digital platform. Uh, they've been able to expand their business. You know, they've been able to expand their networks, not do one party, but do several events in an evening. And, you know, we had a 50%, 60% growth last year, which was fantastic. So for the couple of us out there, not me, who aren't familiar with Pure Romance, tell us what the business is. Okay, so the business is we have 41,000 ambassadors out there that are selling beauty, they're selling wellness, and they're also selling relationship enhancement products. So this business actually was started in 1993 in the basement of our house. Uh, I was still in high school at the time. My mom founded the company and was out there because she saw a need. She saw this whole need about you know people losing connection, divorce rates creeping to 60%. Nobody's out there communicating, and she knew that people needed more information on their body how to keep their relationship, you know, fresh and fun. And so we have 41,000 ambassadors that are doing that exact same thing across the globe that are going out there and basically being like the Pinterest for somebody's you know, relationship, love life, how to keep creativity coming back in to your relationship. So, you know, I, I was, I was fortunate that, that, that my mom asked me to come back into the business in 2000. Um, the business was doing about a million dollars, right? It was great. We had about 350 people. And I remember my mom sitting there and going, okay, so, you know, I'm bringing you back in. I want you to come. I, I'm working in Atlanta, Georgia, right? I'm, I'm having a great time. I'm working for a publicly traded company there. And I remember my mom saying, you want to come back? Now, I thought when I come back and I start selling relationship enhancement products, this is in 2000. This wasn't as mainstream as it is today. I'm like, I'm never going to get a job anywhere <laughs> in the world. Chris, what was your last job? Right? It's like, no, no, no. I'm saying people are going to ask you. So, Chris, what was your last job? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is the this is the funniest part is that I didn't know it was going to work out the way it did when I came in. You know, Patty stuck to doing product and product development and training, and my job was strategy, growth, vision. Where are we going? And you know, we really sat back and divided and conquered, and 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 taking the company. Everybody asked, "What is the secret?" Right? And the secret was we literally, my mom and I, got in a U-Haul and went from city to city to city, and and looking for people that want to own and operate their own business. You know, they use the word side hustle today. I love the fact we've been doing side hustle right. since you know 1993. You know. So 
it's no new thing for us. It is like, that's what we're out there. We are looking for people that wanted a side hustle. They wanted to be able to go out there and run a really cool business. And we're looking to really go out there and expand the customer base, people knowing exactly what it is that we do. So Chris, I want to go back to when did you, how old were you when your mom started this business? So my mom started this business in 1983 as when she really got into the industry, right? She started her business in 1993. Now, the first time I ever heard, you know, what was happening, that's in the first chapter of my book, right? And talk about this, which is, you know, I go to the bus stop and my mom at that time. And how old are you now? Oh, gosh, I had to be 12. Okay. And 12 or 13. And my mom, you know, all of a sudden, I'm walking to the bus stop. My mom had just done a radio show the night before with Bill Cunningham out of Cincinnati, Ohio. And, you know, I come to the bus stop and this kid goes, oh, my gosh, there's a sex toy lady's kid. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, what are you talking about? So I look around like, is he talking to me? I look over my shoulder and he was pointing. He goes, yeah, yeah, your mom's a sex toy lady. And I remember getting in this fight, like just going out there and going after him because I really didn't understand what was going on. And that was the first time I really found out when my mom came, I'm sitting in the principal's office and my mom sat back and said, listen, Chris, what I'm out there doing is trying to keep people together. You know, your dad and I got a divorce. There are a lot of people just like us that have lost communication, lost that. And I'm out there making sure the parents stay together. That was as simple as she put it down. Did she go into what she did? No. Did she go into all of the other things that are going? No. She kept it simple. She kept it easy. But she also said, if any other person makes fun of you or gives you a hard time of what I do, I'll let you take in the invoice of what their parents purchased. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So Chris, what was the conversation like? Your mother had a decent, you know, small business, a million dollars. Why'd she say, Chris, come in and work with me? And why did you agree? Because a lot of people, first of all, a lot of mothers would invite their sons into their business. And second thing is a lot of sons wouldn't agree. No. And you know, it's so, it's so interesting. I really thought I was going to be here three months. That was my thing. When I came back and said I was going to come back to work with her, I already committed to a job that I was going to be half the time in St. Louis and half the time in Italy. And I thought, okay, I have a three months kind of sabbatical before I start. I'll kind of help her do this. But once I got in this and I started seeing the, the amount of people that she was changing lives with and giving them an opportunity, giving them the ability to find what the true secret is, which was themselves, by going out and empowering them and empowering them to make choices that were better for them and also for their family. So immediately I started falling in love with this. Um, you know, I think she knew that I had a great marketing degree. I, I went out and I was working for, like I said, a publicly traded company at the time and, and helping grow that business and coming back in, she knew she had something. She was that visionary that stood out and said, I want to go out there and change the way people look at this because it's needed. She just needed somebody to come in and say, hey, how did you get it done? And that's why I think we work so well together. Now, was it weird the first couple of meetings where we're start, they're talking about bedroom toys and we're in, in a meeting with my mother? Yes, it was awkward. It was weird. But, you know, over a period of time, you just you just get over that stuff. You're like, oh, OK, it's like any other business that's out there. But at what point did you know that this wasn't just a three month gig that you were going to stay? You know, I think when I started seeing the results of some of these women that were getting in the business and the self-confidence that they were able to kind of allude to or to be able to express through some of the things that they were doing, that's when I started really falling in love with it. Um, I started hearing stories. I did more listening and less talking. And I think when I started really seeing that this business and what we were out there doing could really change somebody's not just the way that they think about them, right? Not just the self-confidence, but also their bank account. Um, you know, most of the people like my mom were, you know, my mom was making $4.25 an hour working for four pediatricians before she got going in Pure Romance and before she started this. That story is all over the place. Women do not take enough time for themselves. They are so much catering to everybody else all of the time that they forget about them and they forget about that they can go out there and design their own life. And that's where I started really falling in love with it because I started seeing these women that came in and they were a little sheepishly in the beginning start actually, you know, just shoulders back, walking in a room and owning the room and being confident that they, you know, could go out there and make change in people, but also be able to be, you know, income earners for their family. 
you know, there's a lot of women and men who've made money in these type of uh, networking business, multi-level marketing, these kinds of things. What type of person is successful at Pure Romance as an ambassador? What does it take? Yeah. You know, I think it takes an attitude, right? You have to have the right attitude. Um, this, I will tell you, in what we do, it's a very, very hard business. I will tell anybody that asks me, is it easy? Do the product sell themselves? The answer is absolutely not. You know, you have to have the attitude to want to engage. That's the number one. You can't just sign up for something and not get engaged. So they got to want to have the, the engagement. They want to have the, have the attitude to outwork everybody else, meaning that they're going to go and they're going to go to the trainings. They're going to stay a student for life. They have to understand that they are in charge of their next paycheck. Most people, we get a salary or we get an hourly wage. We don't get, we're not trained to go out there and hunt for our own paychecks. And so therefore that is the mentality that we've got to instill in people when they get in. If they're okay with that and they have the attitude to you know, push themselves being uncomfortable in, in the aspects of growing a business, when you're uncomfortable, you will start finding you will live a comfortable lifestyle. Most people don't like to be uncomfortable, therefore, that they never get it. And that's why most people live paycheck to paycheck. Chris, you talk about in the book that it's important to practice key habits. That's one of the secret yeah. success and repetition. What yep. kind of repetition do you have to practice to be successful? You know, I think, you know, repetition is mother learning, it's father of action, the architect of accomplishment, right? Like repetition, if you tell your kid, hey, you, you know, the kid comes and says, dad, I want to be a great free throw shooter. What do you say? Shoot free throws. They want to be great at math. What do you tell them? Do as much math as you possibly can. I want to be a great reader. Okay, read as many books as you possibly can. We, we, we know, we already know repetition is the thing that's going to be key to our success in life, but nobody likes that process. They don't, they all want the outcome of being wealthy. They want the outcome of being a success figure earning, but they don't want to do the process. So the repetition of somebody that is successful is somebody that is constantly out there wanting to move more people into their funnel, talk to as many people as they possibly can. The repetition of also self-development. People are not buying products anymore. I'm telling you that you can research any product on the internet. People are buying people. They're buying relationships. So the repetition is, hey, making sure you're getting up in the morning, giving yourself good affirmations that, hey, today is going to be a great day. Working out, you got to take care of your number one asset, which is yourself, right? Too many people aren't getting those endorphins in the morning. They're laying in bed, they're reading their text messages, they're reading their emails, and they're not getting up and bouncing up and saying, you know what, I'm going to take on the day. Those are the repetitions that you're going to see from successful business owners and not just successful business owners, but successful people. See, and that you just explained what people don't, I think, don't really understand. The products that you sell, people can pretty much get them anywhere. They can go on yes. Amazon, they can get similar things, but they want to buy it from people they like. They want to have a great yeah. buying experience. And that's what, Chris, people are buying. Yep. I, I think you know, the people forget about this. Every there's so much. Everybody's selling. There's so much competition, right? You, you have to separate yourself from everybody else. They can go to Amazon. They can go to Walmart. They can go down to Betty down the street, Susie. How are you going to be rememberable? What I tell tell in in the book and what I tell to our our forty one thousand ambassadors is this: LTV lifetime value. What are you going to give to your customers that is going to separate you? Are you going to give them more knowledge? Are you going to give them the most amazing customer service? Are you going to make sure you're there when they need you for, hey, I got a question or I got an answer or I'm, I'm going to a party. I need something you know, for one of my friends. Are you going to be there to make sure that you do the most important thing, which is you don't act like they're a buyer. They're a customer. They're family. That's how you will change the behavior of the people that are going to be doing business with you. Too many people just it, they, they look at it. It's 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 transactional to most people. This is not you're not a clerk. You're not just somebody checking somebody out. You are truly making sure that these people stay with you through their journey and their purchasing of your products. Right, because when people buy these products, you really want to have them report back to you and say, yes. this is how it went. And this is, and then you can suggest something else or when you need a refill of supply or whatever it is, you're forming a lifetime value, a long-term relationship with them. And that's what successful business is all about. If we've got to recreate our customers every single month, that's yep. not a great business. 
No, it's a terrible business. I mean, too many people are, are in the kind of acquisition game. I'm just going to sell and move on. I'm like, and I try to even tell our, our 41,000 people, like it is so much harder to get new customers than to keep your customers that you have happy. And, to, and too many businesses today are just kind of on to the next. What I try to make sure is, hey, are you sending your birthday cards to them? You know, oh, does anybody really read birthday cards? Most people aren't getting mail. So when they get a birthday card, they're like, oh, my gosh, thank you so much. Or you remember, like, you just you got a new special and you, you're you just sending it out to them or you surprise and delight them. You can't go to your customers every time you need money. And that's where I see most people mess up is they're like they sell to them. Then they forget about them. And then when they need money, then they go and they're like, oh, I should go send an email. I should send a text message. No, you should make it every day a repetition that you're going to five, six, 10, 15 of your customers and send them a nice message. I just interviewed the other day. I had uh, Sean Acorn that I got to interview you know, on my podcast. And it's so amazing that he says we have to be praise prisms, right? And it's so true. Most people don't get enough praise in life, even our customers. Like we should go on their their Facebook pages and their Instagram pages, comment about what they're doing. Just tell them that we're here. And, oh, my gosh, I love that dress. That's an awesome purse. The kids look great in baseball. Those are things I don't think people are doing. And I think that they're missing the boat of the relationship game that they need to play in today's world. You know, I've met a lot of famous and very successful business people, and they still like to be praised no matter what. So, Chris, I appreciate you coming back on the show. The title of the book is called The Secret Is You. Where can people get Secret Is You, right? Yep. And The Secret Is You. And and so where can people get a copy of the book and also learn more about uh, your success story? All right. They can go to secretisyou.com. I'm running a bunch of different promotions there. They can tie it in and get also some amazing pure romance products. Or they could go to Barnes & Noble's, Amazon, or wherever they purchase their books. Chris, thanks so much for being on the show. This is AMA 20, WCPT in Chicago. We'll be right back. This episode is provided by Gordon Henry's Winning on Main Street weekly podcast. In each episode, Gordon speaks with small business experts and entrepreneurs about how they got started in their business, the challenges they face, and the technology they use to get ahead. Gordon has over 25 years of experience establishing strategic partnerships, M&A opportunities, along with other client acquisition activities. Check it out and subscribe today at www.winningonmainstreet.com or listen on your favorite podcast channel. Do you still have great expectations for the Great Recession? Barry can show you how to let go of failure and bounce to get ready for that next great success. Go to www.barrymoltz.com. Barry will show you how to get crazy and achieve your business success. Stick around to get your small business unstuck. More of Small Business Radio with Barry Moltz. Now on WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk. One of the hottest businesses to operate these days is ones with a subscription model where you sell the customer once and they continue to pay you every single month. My next guest and expert in this area, Kevin McArdle, is the co-founder and CEO of SureSwift Capital. Kevin, welcome to the show. Hey, Barry, thanks very much for having me. So what attracted you to these kinds of businesses? Well, uh, SureSwift exists to acquire profitable internet-based businesses, and we we experimented with several different business models through acquisition, and it was SaaS that I liked the best because it's it's predictable, as you said. Um, you know, if you gain a customer and you treat them right and you provide good service, there's no reason that that customer should ever leave. And in fact, a lot of our businesses, that customer grows over time. Um, so I like the predictability of it. Uh, I like the, you know, the, the fairness of it. If you do the right things, you should be rewarded by, you know, growing revenue. And this is much better than for a lot of small business owners. They got to look for new customers every single month. So at the end of the month, they start from zero. Yeah. And so that's a great thing too. And to be clear, we look for new customers every month, but we're not starting from zero. So if a, if a business has a thousand customers in January, it's likely they should have around around a thousand customers in February, if nothing new changes. So our goal is to get it to 1100 or 1200 by the next month. But yeah, you always have a base of revenue that you're working off of. So when you're going out and you're looking for these kinds of businesses, what size are you looking for? How much revenue they need to have those kinds of things? 
Yeah, we look for businesses that are generating between 250,000 a year in revenue up to and over 2 million a year in revenue. So we're buying relatively small businesses. But what's great about this, and I know you talk about all kinds of different types of small business, the profit margins on these businesses could be from 30 to upwards of 70% margins. That's another thing that people love about software in general and software as a service or SaaS specifically. And so why this particular niche of what you say, 250,000 a year to what was the higher number? About 2 million a year in in revenue. Um, yeah, we, we like that niche because um, one one of my friends kind of assessed our business and like he's very good at like uh, paraphrasing things that are very simple. He's like, OK, I get it. You're buying businesses that are too big to be small, but they're too small to be big. And it, it, it made sense to me. But let me explain, you know, too big to be small means they're a big enough business that they need. If, the, if a founder wants to sell, they kind of need to sell to somebody like SureSwift that's a professional acquirer. You're not just going to you know, find somebody at the you know, at your gym and say, hey, can you buy my business? Um, so that's what too, too big to be small is. But they're also too small to be big. And this is the part that I like. You know, we've got a very large company that's acquired a lot of businesses, but we're still below the radar of sort of professional or proper private equity firms that really can't in, you know, um, or strategic acquisitions where, you know, a a normal private equity firm isn't going to go below, say, $5 million in a sale price because it's just not worth their effort because they're usually trying to move bigger sums of money. Plus the legal fees are the the same, right? (laughs) Totally, totally. Um, So we like that we're, we're in sort of a blue ocean here where there aren't a lot of professional acquirers, particularly acquiring SaaS businesses in this uh, this niche. And companies of that size are typically pretty straightforward for us to take over and operate. A lot of times it's a, you know, a single founder with some technical ability. They may have hired three to five contractors. Uh, and because we've done it so many times, we, we kind of know how to run that playbook. And what kind of other metrics, uh, Kevin, are you looking for be- besides like the annual revenue? Are you looking at retention rate? Yeah, definitely. Retention, you know, that the, you mentioned all the wonderful things about SaaS and the recurring revenue. And, and the thing that you have to be careful of is if you're losing customers faster than you're gaining, that's a that's a that's a business that's going to struggle. Uh, so we look at retention rates. We always, uh, you know, I mentioned revenue uh, sizes and margins. But if a business is not profitable, we are not interested. Um, and, you know, a lot of people run software businesses at a loss for a long, long time. Even companies as big as like Twitter don't actually make money week over week, but um, that's just not our model. So it has to be profitable, uh, has to have low churn, you know, decent revenue size, and um, a little bit more subjective, but something that's really important to us are the people, not just the people that would be coming with the business on an ongoing basis, but we spend a lot of time trying to get to know the founder of a business. And I don't know if you'll agree with this, Barry, but I've kind of learned that small businesses take on the personality of their founder for better and for worse and yeah. so as we get to know somebody if if we don't have like a, a core values fit with that founder and understand the way that they built the business is the way that we would have built it ourselves then we usually pass on that because you know people are you know often the most important part of the business numbers aside so a healthy SaaS business what should the retention rate be uh, good question. It depends on the, the niche and the type of business it is, but generally we're looking for like less than 5% churn of that business. So wow. That so 95% should be come back every year. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, like that, the, the lower, the better, of course, there are uh, businesses that we own or that, that are out there that have what people call net negative churn. And that means even if you, um, you know, you lose two customers, you gain five or you, you lose a little bit of revenue, but you gain more revenue from existing customers. That's sort of the dream scenario. Um, but generally speaking, the lower, the better. And so what kind you know, so for a small business owner that's listening, that's in the SaaS business, what kind of multiple should they expect to get for their business on their annual recurring revenue? That's a really good question. Um, and it's not probably what people are used to seeing in, uh, you know, trade magazines or websites. Um, the businesses that we're buying, and this isn't just a sure swift opinion, this is sort of in the market size. Generally, people can get between three to five times the trailing 12 month profits. Now, keep in mind, we're in a specific niche with a specific size. 
and we're only buying profitable businesses. So you might read, you know, about somebody selling a startup for seven times revenue. Well, that there, there's a reason for that. And that's just a niche that we're not in. So you said three to five, five times profit. So you're not measuring people off of their annual recurring revenue. You're measuring it off of profit. That's right. And, you know, that's that's our model. Uh, other people might buy on a, a, a multiple of revenue, but they're right. also probably less concerned with profits. So I would assume that these businesses, since they're fairly small, are hard to find. You know, I noticed that you do a lot of advertising on Google. Is that an effective way for you? Um, it is. It, to be honest, it's something we're testing. Um, it's it's interesting, this space that we're in and, and another um, aspect of the businesses we love to buy, Barry, that I don't think I've mentioned yet is we love to buy from bootstrappers. So self-funded entrepreneurs who didn't take uh, venture capital or angel investments to grow their business. And part of the reason for that is that they grow these healthy, profitable businesses. And what's interesting is there are tens of thousands of these businesses out there in the world. And most people that don't operate in this niche don't know that any of them exist. Right. Um, or you might be using the software, but you have no idea that it's you know a solo bootstrapper who built the thing, and and you might think there's a big company behind it. So, we do advertise on Google just for brand recognition. It's not our best channel, to be honest. Our best channel is just being good actors in these communities where people congregate. So just like anything, you know, uh, like-minded individuals or people working on similar projects, they get together in generally online communities, uh, especially now in COVID times. It's it's exclusively online. And once you know where to look, um, these businesses are not as hard to find. And there's a, you know, we don't rely very much on brokers, but there is a, you know, a, a group of brokers that ex, uh, deal exclusively in the, this size sort of online software business. You know, that's really interesting because you say that the, the Google ads don't really work, but you just have to be involved in the communities where these people are talking to each other. Um, and there, there are some brokers that, I guess, specialize in these kinds of businesses. Yeah, that's right. Just like, uh, you know, if you're if you're trying to sell a local hardware store, there's somebody in your town that specializes in the trading of local hardware stores. There's the same type of thing for people that specialize in selling SaaS businesses. And that's a good way to kind of get exposed and, and, um, you know, get into the right markets and the right places. So we're talking to Kevin McArdle. He's the co-founder and the CEO of SureSwift Capital. You've acquired a lot of SaaS businesses. Why not just start them from scratch? That's a great question because it's really hard. Um, it's it's much easier to acquire revenue than it is to build revenue. Um, you know, some of the businesses we bought, it took the people seven years to to build up to you know a great healthy business where he was making. You know, I'm thinking of one in particular, seven years to get to sixty thousand dollars a month in revenue. Um, you know, it's if you have the capital, it's much easier to buy a healthy business. And for every business that makes it, like to get to sustainable profitability, there's probably you know a hundred that don't make it. So uh, my my company and my team are just built around finding and acquiring great businesses. We're not built around launching new businesses, even though we have a lot of entrepreneurs on the team, people have built their own businesses in the past. That's just not our model anymore. So when you acquire the business, you're assuming it's, or, or the reason you do it is because it's, you, you think you can grow it. What kinds of things you do initially that where these businesses are perhaps deficient that help grow the revenue of these companies? Mm -hmm. So, um, just about any founder would tell you they're good at some things and not good at other things. Um, typically the, the people that bootstrap a business, they, they have some technical skill. They usually wrote the software themselves. And a lot of times, you know, they, they figure out how to market the software, but that probably isn't their strength. So there's a lot of marketing type things. You mentioned Google ads. Um, it's hard to figure out how to make Google ads work really well. Uh, and so a lot of founders just don't even try that. So, um, or they try and they lose some money and they give up uh, because it's hard. So one of the, one of the simple things for people to understand is like, we'll test Google ads for just about any product to see if there's a payback. Um, but we have a, we have a checklist of like over a hundred things that we do for every single business. And when we're assessing, uh, business that we're thinking about acquiring, we'll kind of look at that checklist and say, okay, these, these 10 things are doing pretty well, you know, number 11 through 20, they're not doing quite so well. And then, you know, there's usually a handful of things that we can see clearly that they're just, they're, they're, um, they're 
haven't tried or they're not doing. And often they know they're not doing. I'll give you a specific example that everybody can wrap their brain around in their personal experience. Every time we buy a business, one of the first things we do is we put a phone number on the checkout page. Uh, we do that because it's been proven, not just through SureSwift, but other places it's been proven that your conversion rate goes up and it's human psychology. If you go to the pricing page and you see a phone number, you believe that there right. are people monitoring that <laughs> exactly. phone number should you need help. Right. And what's funny, people almost never call the phone number, right. but we have proven that just putting the phone number on the website makes conversion rates go up. So that's a, it's a small, simple thing. But it's a thing that a lot of solo founders wouldn't dream of putting a phone number on the website. They don't want people to call them. You know, they're they're they've got busy lives. And so a, a, a small business or a solo entrepreneur often doesn't want to have the hassle of answering the phone where we've got a large business with a lot of people and people around the globe, literally. And so that's no big deal for us to just plop the phone number on and see if people call it because we know the conversion rate is going to go up. It's so interesting to me because on my radio show, I always give my email and my phone number and people go, I can't believe you give your phone number on the air. I go, well, no one calls people email you, but they just feel they have a better connection with you as a result. So, so Kevin, what Same other, yep. what other things do you have you found that lead to growth? The kinds of things that people can do. Uh, well, in general, Barry, the, the biggest thing, and it's not like a specific, the biggest thing is just discipline. Um, you know, it, we, we collect this list of a hundred things that we do with every business because each time we acquire a business, we learn something and we'll test a new strategy with a, with a new business. And we learn from that. Uh, another example is we put pictures and names of the support team on our website so that people know who they're talking to. We showed that that increased conversion for a single business, and then we have the discipline to roll that out for every other single, every other business that we own. Um, so, you know, I don't know if that's the answer you're looking for, but just having the scale of team and the culture in our organization to be disciplined about everything we do. Another way I think about it is, um, you know, we don't we don't talk about home runs at SureSwift. We talk about throwing good pitches. Get up on the mound every single day and throw as many good pitches as you can. And that leads to success and that leads to growth. Um, so it's just about, you know, culture and discipline for us. And Kevin, last question I want to ask you is what problems usually come up for you when you go and acquire a business? Uh, we've got a pretty good system to anticipate problems and avoid them. Um, the, the times where we've had problems, it's when we missed the going back to the people thing. If we um, didn't build a good relationship with the founder and they maybe actively hid something from us, you know, those problems come up. Um, I, you know, an, another way to look at it, Barry, is like our business, though it's it's built around acquiring other people's businesses, it's still just business. And so most of the great things that happen in business are related to the people and the team. And unfortunately, most of the problems that happen in business are also related to the people and the team. Exactly. Uh, and so we're we're um, we focus really hard about getting great people on the team. And when we find somebody who's not a fit, we make a change. And so, you know, problems happen, they come up uh, and we you know, have systems to address it. And so, you know, it's not something I um, lose a lot of sleep over. You know, we want to have great people on the team. And when there's not a fit, it's it's a bummer. But, you know, we, we move on. And that that usually that fixes probably 90 percent of the problems that come up. Well, Kevin, I appreciate being on the show. If there's a small business owner that has a SaaS business, how can they reach you? Uh, I'm on Twitter, Kevin underscore McArdle, and McArdle has one C, or just SureSwiftCapital.com. There's all the all the ways to get a hold of us are right there on the website. Kevin, thank, I'm sure the telephone number is there too, right? <laughs> Not on the corporate website yeah. there. <laughs> this is AMA 20 WCPT in Chicago. We'll be right back. AT&T Business has the wireless plan your teams need to stay connected. With up to 100 gigabytes of mobile hotspot data, they can easily use their phones to connect tablets and laptops to the internet. They can use it in the middle of a delivery from the back of a truck, on-site or off. Mobile hotspot data boosts productivity virtually anywhere your work takes you. So upgrade to AT&T Business and get their best plan with 100 gigabytes of mobile data at att.com slash B-I-Z-U-R.
YW and join me and AT&T Business at the next Small Business Expo for more resources to boost your business. Register for free at smallbusinessexpo.com. Running a small business is hard and confusing. Most entrepreneurs start a company to solve a problem and just want to focus on doing only that. Unfortunately, running a business gets in the way and everything that comes along with it, like marketing, sales, customer service, employees, freelancers, and vendors, and money and finance. Barry's new book, Small Business Hacks, 100 Shortcuts to Your Success, solves this problem. It's a simple guide for anyone in a small business to be able to accomplish one of these tasks in five steps or less. No more angst over the issue of searching for the solution on the web. Riva Leonsky and Barry assembled these tips from their combined 50 years in business, both as small business owners and as journalists interviewing thought leaders about their path to prosperity. It's never been easier to start a business, but with so much competition moving at the speed of the internet, it's also never been so easy to fail. This doesn't have to be you. Keep this guide nearby on your desk, tablet, smartphone, or under your pillow. It'll allow you to quickly bust through most problems you'll encounter and leave more time to do what you love at your company. Today's show is sponsored by Winning on Main Street, a weekly podcast hosted by Gordon Henry. The show brings small business owners and experts together to discuss the challenges of starting a business, keeping it running, and what they use to get ahead. Gordon has over 25 years of experience with client acquisition activities. He's also a leader enhancing company images through public relations, brand management, and advertising. Check it out and subscribe today at www.winningonmainstreet.com or listen on your favorite podcast channel. Stick around to get your small business unstuck. More of Small Business Radio with Barry Moltz, now on WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk. Well, divorce under any circumstances is a messy and ugly thing, but it gets worse when you have a small business or your business partner is your spouse. Here to help is divorce and family lawyer, Tiffany Hughes. Tiffany, welcome to the show. Thank you, Barry. Thank you for having me. Well, what I've heard is that COVID has been good for divorce lawyers business. Is that true? (laughs) Well, um, yes. Um, Obviously, when you have, you know, you have two spouses who usually are not under the same roof 24-7, you know, it, it tends to it tends to be a little problematic. So I think that COVID has resulted in people ending up filing for divorce, but I think really ultimately the foundation um, of their relationship was already cracked. And I think that this just exacerbated it. Well, my wife always says, and we've been married for 30 years, that the key to our happy marriage is that I'm on the road two nights a week. And now during this period (laughs) of time, it's not. So, you know, we had to build a house in Arizona so we could have more space. That's what really really worked. Well, a lot of small business owners, you know, uh, let's say they have their business already and they're going to get married. Should they have some kind of prenup so the spouse doesn't get half of the business if they get divorced or in states that doesn't really work because the spouse gets half no matter what? So I'm going to tell you honestly, and this is against my interest as a divorce lawyer because it would it would essentially put me out of business. So I'm going to tell you just like if you were a friend or a family member of mine, absolutely. Um, if everybody had a prenup, there really wouldn't be a lot of work for me or any divorce attorneys or family law attorneys because everything would be already negotiated ahead of time. So all I would be doing is essentially filing motions, um, trying to void the prenup. That would be my sole practice. That's what I'd be doing every day. <laughs> and, and are those, let's talk about the, the first, the prenup. So would a prenup in this case be, okay, I had the business before we got started. We're now getting married. So if we get divorced, you get X. Is that basically what the prenup says? You, you know what you, as long as it is allowed underneath the statute um, and it is not something that's illegal. So you can't go into, you know, issues in regards to children child support, et cetera. Um, everything else for the most part is allowed. So you can make it whatever you want. I mean, I've had clients that have said, if my wife gains more than 15 pounds, you know, like 
X will happen or, you know, this is wow. for this. That's like, nuts. You can, yeah, you can do, you can be very creative with a prenup as long as it falls within the purview of the statute. No, I guess my no. question is more is I'm running a $10 million business. It's worth $5 million. And so I got it before I married you. And when we divorce, you're not going to get half of the business. You're instead going to get a million dollars. Is that okay? Is that something you can do? Yeah, you could definitely do that. You can say, you know, you can get even more creative and say that throughout the entirety of the marriage that any business related income that is generated would be that individual sole and separate property, not marital property. So one of the things that happens a lot when I work with clients on shareholders agreements is that if, if one of the partners gets divorced, they, the rest of the partners don't want to be partners with that partner's ex-spouse. So how, is, how can you best ensure that that doesn't happen? I would put it in the prenup, to be honest. Um, I would specify that it would be non-marital and that it would remain non-marital so that if anything were to occur, let's say, for example, that the business buys another business or, um, you know, the business grows in general and the assets grow, that regardless of what happens with the business, that it it remains non-marital and it has a non-marital identity. That is so very, very important. Um, Shareholders agreements, I don't do them a lot. I'm not an expert in that area, so I don't want to speak to it, but I do know that a lot of my clients do have those. But if you have in the prenup that they're not even entitled to any portion of the business, then there wouldn't be a need for a shareholder agreement unless, in fact, there is a marital portion of the business to which the other spouse would be entitled to a portion. Yeah, I'm thinking of a little bit different scenario where someone is already married, they become a partner in a business, right? So at that point, what do they do? Because everything up to that point has been a marital asset and now they're coming into a business and uh, most of my clients, what they do is they don't say, well, this part is not for the spouse. They just force the spouse to sell their share so they don't be become partners with the divorced spouse's divorce ex-spouse, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you're, if they're already married and let's say that after they're married, um, the business comes, you know, the business is formed, right? Then you're looking at a post-nuptial agreement after the marriage. So before the marriage, if there is a business, then that's when you put it in the prenup and say that the, the other spouse has no right to it, that it's the the other spouse's non-marital property and any and all income generated from it is non-marital property. Um, and then again, like I said, if it's after the marriage and the business is formed or if there's a change, like if somebody becomes a partner in a business after the marriage is formed, then you'll have a prenup or a post-nup rather. What is your guess about how many business, how many uh, marriages in the U.S. have a pre or post nuptial? I mean, is this a very common thing or is it only for people that are very well off? You know what? Most people in general, whether they have money or not, don't have a prenup or a postnup. Um, it's this stigma in society that you know, that it's not, it's not a good thing They because they don't understand what the, the whole concept of it really is about. It's not about let's think in advance where our marriage is going to fail. Let's think in advance that after we're married, that we may get divorced. Um, and it's just something that people just can't grasp the understanding of because it's, they don't want to think about that. Right. You know, they're about to get married or they already are married. They don't want to think about if they're going to get divorced if they're already married. So it's the stigma that really affects people that they don't want to end up doing it. We're talking to divorce and family lawyer, Tiffany Hughes. Tiffany, I find the same thing with shareholders agreements. A lot of business partners don't want to have them because they don't want to think about that this business someday is going to end. But the better shareholder agreement you have going into it, the stronger partnership you have, because someday, someday when you go sell that business or something goes wrong, people are going to read that agreement and it's going to be important. Yeah, well, that's a very, very good point that you make, because a business going into business with other people 
is like a marriage. Absolutely. Right? Just this time so, without the sex, right? Right, exactly. In most cases. <laughs> so, yeah, um, it's a financial benefit, not a romantic or any you know, other benefit. But, you know, it's it's interesting that it's fine to do a shareholders agreement, that there's no stigma in society about a shareholders agreement, but there's a stigma associated with a prenup or a postnup. And I'm not saying that it's a good idea to look at marriage as a business, because that's not what I'm saying. But I think if people would just have more of an, you know, an open, you know, view into that you're trying to safeguard and you're trying to make sure that nobody gets, you know, nobody gets screwed, right? You're, everybody's going to be okay. And that if in, in the event that it fails, this is what's going to happen. And that you don't have to litigate I mean, people spend hundreds and thousands of dollars, Barry, on litigation because they don't have a prenup and they don't have a postnup. So I think especially if you're if you own a small business, the last thing that you want to do is litigate how much the business is worth and how much your spouse is going to get and dealing with all of that. It's it's awful. It's awful. So let's talk about that a little bit, because you have a lot of times a small business as an asset, uh, as a marital asset, or perhaps you have the business partners actually being married to each other. What have you seen as ways that people determine of what the value of that business is? Yeah, it's a whole process. Um, it requires typically at least 95% of cases getting a business evaluator hired and going through the process of having that expert value the business. Most parties and spouses, they do not agree as to what the business is worth. One person is, one person is saying that it's worth a million. The other person saying it's only worth a hundred thousand. You have it depends which ones wants you know, to buy it. Right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, the other spouse wants to get bought out. So they want that value of the business to be a million dollars. They get 500,000. So it's it's a huge, long process for the business evaluation. And if the parties can't agree, which they don't, then you're looking at a trial. You're, you're looking at another expert. So then the other spouse gets their own expert. Now you have two competing experts and you're going to trial and spending, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars. And so do it's, it's hard because you're trying to figure out what the value of the business is and it's the value if you sell it. It's not like a piece of real estate. So it actually inherently has more risk to it. So do you count it, Tiffany, just like the other assets when you're dividing things up? You do count it as you count it as an asset, but it's it's complex. So when you're looking at a business, part of the evaluation that's completed is a lot of its goodwill. Right. So if you have somebody that is running a business, but the business is really operating because of that one spouse's, um, you know, goodwill is what they call it as far as participation and generating the business. So if that person could then close the business and open up a new business and all of the people come to that particular individual, not necessarily the business itself, then you're looking at goodwill. So goodwill has to be factored in when you're evaluating a business. And then you have to do, you know, obviously a, a whole skew of calculations about accounts receivables, um, any tools, any other assets, cars, um, machinery to get down to the final of what the business is actually worth. And when you get to that final valuation, then that's added to, you know, the assets column and determining how it's going to be, that money is going to be split for the value of it. Well, you know, with my wife and I, we have a very simple formula. If I want to leave, she keeps everything. So, you know, it just works out really, <laughs> well, really well. You were talking before that sometimes you contest the validity of a prenuptial agreement. What kinds of things invalidate it, Tiffany? Um, the most common are duress coercion, um, the date that it was signed. So the closer that you are to uh, the wedding, the wedding date itself, um, that plays a role that people would be pressured into signing it because the wedding was coming up. Um, I always recommend clients to get these started in advance as soon as you can. Um, I'm not saying, you know, 
call me immediately when you get engaged, (laughs) but you know, obviously get something in place early on and have the discussions with your spouse, especially if you own a small business or any business and have the discussions with your spouse about it early on so that then the details can be worked out. And, And that's really the most important. And Everything, you know, as far as any other reasons, um, I always recommend um, that everybody is uh, represented by counsel. Um, Even if it's one attorney is drafting, let's say I draft it, I draft the agreement. I still want the other spouse to have an attorney to review it so I can put in the prenup that they're, they're represented by counsel. Right, because you want to make sure that someone gets some independent advice, right? Correct. Yeah. I don't want them to later on then say, oh, well, you know what? I didn't have an attorney. I didn't understand what this all meant. This is all new to me. It was so close to the wedding date. You know, Billy just gave this to me two weeks ago. I was forced to sign it because we have the wedding and we put all this money into the wedding. I don't want to do that. And so Tiffany, I wanted to tell you, no, go ahead, please. I want to tell you one other thing. Um, that I think is very important for anybody that's out there listening. I always get a court reporter and I always have the party sign and go through the terms of the agreement on the record with a court reporter. Not that anybody's going to hear it. It's not going to become public, but because there'll be a transcript of everything that was discussed and making sure that the spouse, both parties know that these are the terms and that they understand them and they say that they understand them. So just FYI, it's another level protection. Tiffany, the last question I wanted to ask you is what percent of the time in your experience are these prenups invalidated that something went wrong? Um, you know, they're always attempted to be invalidated. Um, but the majority of them, the reasons, the reasons why they're invalidated is because of the fact of the timing, no counsel. That's where I see them. But the majority of the times that there is a prenup, just because most people don't have them, they are challenged or they're asked to be enforced. It's either or. So if I, if I, you know, if my client doesn't want to have the prenup enforced, then I'm going to attempt to invalidate it. Right. Exactly. I mean, depending on who hires me, I'm on the other side. I'm on either side. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. Well, Tiffany, I appreciate you getting getting on the phone with us for this interview. If people run into these types of issues, how can they contact you? Um, feel free to give my office a call. Um, office number 773-893-0228. Or if you want to, you know, shoot me an email, my email address is Tiffany Hughes at thughewslaw.com. Tiffany, thanks again. And I want to thank everyone for joining this week's radio show. I want to thank our sponsor, AT&T Business. Join me and AT&T Business at the next Small Business Expo on June 17th for more resources on how to run your business. Go to www.smallbusinessexpo.com. I got to thank our incredible staff. We're still working hard in our studio while I've been broadcasting for this from home. Our booking producer, Sarah Shaffron, our in-studio producer, Lady B, our marketing manager, Courtney Gilchrist. If you're serious about being more successful in a post-COVID economy, it feels really good to say those words. Give me a call, 773-837-8250, or email me at barry at molts.com. Remember, love everyone, trust a few, pile your own canoe, and wear your mask over your nose. Have a profitable and passionate week. You can find Barry Moltz on the web at barrymoltz.com or more episodes of Small Business Radio at smallbizradioshow.com.